open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And as you were doing so, I would ask you once again to stand this morning for the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 1. And I want to read in your hearing verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. This is what we find. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, uh, as they were looking on, rather, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please find your seats. It's been said that good is the enemy of great. I'm sure you've, you've heard that phrase before. It, it encapsulates this idea that, that too many people, and really too many organizations, they sort of settle. And they take shortcuts accepting that good is good enough and that they're not actually really striving to be great. Again, good is the enemy of great. I wonder if that sort of idea can be applied to the church. Has Christ's church, has the good become the enemy of great? For example, I would submit to you that there are plenty of good things that the church can busy herself doing. For example, we could spend all of our resources trying to feed the poor, or provide shelter for the homeless, or teach English as a second language. There are those who have advocated the church should work to end war and establish peace, or collaborate in an effort to cure some illness. Or perhaps the church should be busy carrying water for the social justice movement. Now please hear me, some of those things are good and fine and, and others are not so much. But here is the question once again. If good is the enemy of great, what is the greatest calling of the church? Or if I can ask it this way, what is the mission of the church? And again, not a mission but the mission. And the short answer is this. The church is sent into the world to witness to Jesus Christ by proclaiming His life-giving gospel and by making disciples of the nations. That's the great. And redeeming grace, I want to submit to you that we must beware lest we settle for the good. Now, with the mission of the church in front of us, let me say something very quickly about annual missions Sunday. 
here at Redeeming Grace, every third Sunday of February, we pause to take inventory. We set aside this Sunday to really focus our attention on global missions and the part that you and I as individuals and as a church play. And perhaps as I say that, two thoughts immediately come into your mind. Perhaps you are thinking on the one hand, well, why the third Sunday of February? And two, well, why have an annual missions Sunday at all? Let me briefly answer both of those questions. We have chosen to do this on the third Sunday of February because of a man named Adoniram Judson. Who was Judson? Well, he was the first American overseas missionary. It was the third Sunday of February, 1812, when the young missionary, and by young I mean he was 23, and his new bride... They married less than two weeks earlier. No honeymoon for these folks. They set sail for Burma to witness to Christ. So in honor of Judson and his family and their sacrifice, we have set aside this third Sunday of the month to inflame our hearts for the fame of Christ's name across the globe. Let me answer the second question. Why does this church celebrate an annual Mission Sunday at all? For this simple reason. Because if your heart is anything like mine, then you are often apathetic toward missions and the global purposes that God has to exalt His Son through the Gospel. We've already confessed our sins this morning, but perhaps we can do so again now. Can we just all be honest and acknowledge the fact that it is not uncommon for you and I to fall asleep at the wheel here? It is very easy to sort of get tunnel vision. And so all that captures our attention is really what is taking place in our very own, and let's be honest, very small lines. And so the purpose of this morning is is to set aside this day so that we would be captivated by the triune God's global purposes, as opposed to our own tendency, which is to be so utterly, narrowly self-focused. I should also say that this morning is intended to stretch us and to challenge us to get off of the bench and into the game, as opposed to, again, our default, which I think for most of us is to sort of sit by on the sidelines rather idly. So then, let's prepare to get in the game. Congregation, the question for us this morning is this. What is the mission of the church? Remember, not the good, but the great. What is the main mission of the church? And I think in a lot of ways, Christ Himself answers this for us in verse 8 of our passage. Because Christ says to His disciples, you will be My witnesses. So let's be very clear, particularly on this annual mission Sunday, the main mission of the church is nothing less than bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. True, there are a plethora of good and noble and fine things the church can occupy herself with. But Christ, who is the head of the church, has given us our main mission. We are to be His 
witnesses. Now I want to also be very quick to point out that the language that Jesus Himself uses here in verse 8, it actually comes from the Old Testament. Specifically, the prophet Isaiah. I don't have time to unpack all of it for you this morning, but suffice it to say, it comes from the prophet Isaiah in the context of redemption and grace. Here's sort of a a 30,000 foot flyby of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is communicating this. All the world, including even the covenant people of God, all the world has sinned against God. And in the world's rebellion, we have all committed the most vilest of sins. You know what the vilest of sins is? It's idolatry. That is to say, we have sought our safety and our security. We have sought for joy and identity. We have looked for our hopes and for our very lives, not in God and who He is, but in something or someone else entirely. That's really what idolatry is. And because of our idolatry, what we all deserve is the unmitigated judgment of God. What the Bible and what you and I typically refer to as hell catch this. God in His grace has seen fit to redeem. And the question might be, well, how does God do this? And and we know a lot of ways that God doesn't do this. For example, we know that redemption will not come through our own self-effort or our own self-will. You can't redeem yourself. I can't redeem you. I can't redeem your kids. You can't redeem your kids. And the reason that none of us can redeem any of us is because we are all lost in our sin. Think of it this way. If, if I'm drowning in the middle of the ocean, am I going to be able to help you out if you are drowning too? And so the picture that Isaiah paints is this picture of a servant. One who would come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Isaiah tells us that this servant, he will do this. He will redeem us by actually keeping the law that you and I have broke. And that he will actually die for our sins under the judgment of God. In other words, Isaiah looks forward to, he anticipates this servant who will both come to us and he will come for us. He really will rescue humanity from their sin. Beloved, he rescues us from ourselves. Now catch this. According to Isaiah, it is to that servant we are to bear witness. For example, Isaiah 43 declares, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. God goes on to say through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, that I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses declares the Lord. Sound familiar? You see, 
Jesus is that faithful servant Isaiah spoke of. Jesus is the one who redeems us and we are to be His witnesses. That's what Acts 1.8 is getting at. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's picking up on these promises from the Old Testament and Jesus is saying, they're fulfilled in Me and now you, church, are to be My witnesses. And by that, Scripture means we are to be witnesses of His redeeming grace that He pours out upon us in the Gospel. Fair enough, you say. Well, how do we witness? Again, verse 8 of our text says, you will be my witnesses. So what does that look like? Well, we're going to flesh that out a bit more in a moment, but for now, let me just mention two indispensable ways that we witness. We do, we do so in work, and we do so in word. In work and in word. When I say in work, what I'm, what I'm really trying to get at is in how we live our lives. Brothers and sisters, what we spend our time on, what we invest in, what we give ourselves over to, that is part of our witness. That is to say, people see it, don't they? How we treat one another. How we forgive those who have wronged us, both inside these four walls and outside of them. How we care for those who are in need. This is all a part of our witness. We want to think. We want to operate. And yes, I know sometimes it's a naughty word, but we want to behave as Christ has called us to. But we are also to witness in our word. And and this is certainly the emphasis, not just here in our passage, but, but really throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. The chief way we witness is by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether it be to family or neighbors or friends at school or co-workers or simply those whom God brings into your life through His good providence, as Christians we ought to be a people who, who open our mouths and speak the gospel to them. That's what it means. To be Christ's witnesses. Sure, you can solely the gospel by speaking it and then living a life that doesn't back it up. That's true. But you can't actually communicate the gospel by merely living a good and decent life if you never open your mouth. To witness is to use our words. So redeeming grace in light of the main mission of the church. Let me apply this in two ways. One, with respect to missionaries more broadly speaking. And two, with respect to those of you like me who have planted roots here. First, when it comes to missionaries that we either send out or support. We as a church want to get behind 
and encourage and pray for and financially support missionaries who use their mouths. That is to say, those who are commissioned to a specific place among a specific people. And the missionary then knows the language and the missionary lives among the people and the missionary proclaims the gospel. Because that is the main mission, verse 8. We want to throw our limited resources in that direction. Remember, we don't want to settle for good, but great. Let me also say something of us here. In fact, rather than say something, let me ask you a question. Given our calling to be Christ's witnesses, to whom are you ministering? It's sort of a cliche in evangelicalism, but I'm going to use it nonetheless. What is your mission field? Where are you being Christ's witnesses? It's true, the emphasis this morning and the emphasis of our passage is on global missions. That's true. But please, don't make the mistake of thinking that that our passage gives you and I the luxury of merely writing our tithes and writing our offerings, dropping them in a bucket, and you and I never having to actually open our mouths. We, redeeming grace, are to be Christ's witnesses right here in the place where God has planted us. And that means we need to be praying toward and encouraging each other and striving to engage those around us with the gospel. But of course, there is more to the mission than merely crossing the street. This mission requires the church not just cross the street, but cross oceans and cross continents. Which is really just another way of saying we must come to grips with the magnitude of this mission. Where is the church to be Christ's witnesses? The answer is everywhere. Or as verse 8 puts it, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Beloved, I want you to see something of the the ever-expanding nature of the mission. This is key, especially as we reflect this morning once again upon global missions. The gospel carried in the bosom of the church is to be taken, verse 8, to the end of the earth. In other words, there is a moving out from Jerusalem. Notice, Jerusalem is not the finish line. Just the starting line. Maybe another way to lean into this would be to recognize that Christ's words there in verse 8 are something of a rebuke to his disciples. I say that because remember, just a moment ago, they asked the Lord Jesus in verse 6, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Not the risk of reading too much into these words. It seems apparent that the disciples here are still clinging to some notion of a geopolitical kingdom. You see, this was in the air that they breathed, the water that they drank. 
They are hypnotized by a kingdom that will be focused on Jerusalem. One with borders and a zip code and a particular ethnicity. Verse 8 then is a mild rebuke. This gospel and the kingdom is not reserved for some piece of real estate in the Middle East. No. This gospel is to go forward and this kingdom is to conquer the whole wide world. I think of it this way. The blast radius of the gospel is one that is massive. According to Scripture, yes, it's true, the bomb was detonated in Jerusalem, but its shrapnel flies everywhere. Consider this. It flies out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria all the way to us. To us who live oceans and miles away. What this all puts front and center once again is the mission of the church. We are not to be a come and see people, but a go and tell people. A slightly snarkier way to say it. The church was never called upon to remain in some holy huddle where we all feel safe. Nor are we called upon to retreat to some quiet monastery out there in the desert. No. The kingdom of Christ is a global kingdom, we are told. And so the church must adopt a global mindset. One that sees the earth as a great field where we plant the seed of the gospel, all so that Christ would receive a fruitful harvest. Perhaps in an effort to to help this sort of register in our own context, we we could say verse 8 this way, Redeeming grace, you were to be my witnesses in Kennewick, the Tri-Cities, all of eastern Washington, the whole Pacific Northwest, and even to Papua New Guinea. You see, that is how the disciples would have heard the passage that we just read from. They would have heard it with both fear and excitement as they grasped something of the magnitude of this mission. So here's the question. Given the global nature of the kingdom, are we laboring to that end? You see, it is not enough to cross the street here in Kennewick, though we should, of course, do that. But are we crossing the oceans? Are we praying for missionaries on the other side of the world? Are we giving financially to to missions organizations that serve in places we can't find on a map? As part of our prayer gatherings, both here this morning and this evening, are we praying for the fruitful expansion of Christ's kingdom? This is our calling, beloved. Through the preaching of the gospel, the church is to spread into every corner and recess of the globe. 
planting a flag for the glory of Jesus Christ right there. To which you might be tempted to respond, but pastor, this mission sounds too vast. This is way bigger than us. It's way beyond us. We could never do this. Well, that's true. You're right. And that's because like your redemption, this too must be the work of God. In that vein, consider verse 8 yet again. Because we are told that this whole thing is dependent upon what? Or better said, dependent upon who? The Lord Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It is then and only then when the church will be equipped to be Christ's witnesses. It is then and only then when the church will be empowered to take the gospel to the end of the earth. You see, what Christ does here is he equates the receiving of the power with the reception of the Spirit. We, we know the mission, that's true, but we need the Holy Spirit to enable us to carry out that mission. So what should be bubbling up in our minds right about now is something like this. Well, when will the Spirit come and empower the church for her mission? Spoiler alert, He already has. Don't think here of verse 8 and, and the Spirit's power and presence as some propaganda. This is Christ's promise. And Christ has already fulfilled that promise in Acts chapter 2. If you just turn your page one over to the right, you will find that, that on Pentecost, as the church is gathered together, on Sunday I should add, Christ pours out His Holy Spirit upon the church. Don't miss this. Don't separate Acts 1 and 2 from one another in such a way that they're not connected. Christ pours out His Spirit upon the church for the church's mission that He gives here in Acts chapter 1. Another way to say it, we do, need, we do not need to sit here on our hands waiting for some liver shivers. Because Christ has already given us His Spirit. He's already given us His power. If you are a Christian, you possess the Holy Spirit now. But better said, the Holy Spirit possesses you now. But the point is that right now, right now you are equipped to be Christ's witness in this world. So what does it look like then? When the church operates in the power of the Spirit. Let me give you three words. Three words that are reflected throughout the book of Acts in connection with the Spirit's work. First, we will have conviction. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but evidence of the empowering of the Holy Spirit is this. The church will have the settled conviction regarding the truth of Christ's Gospel. Let me be a bit more specific. God has come to us in Christ. Christ was born. 
He lived. He died. He was raised up from the dead. He ascended into heaven at His Father's right hand where He was crowned the King of the world. And there, in His place of power and glory, is where Christ is now in these very moments interceding for you and I even as His enemies are made His footstool. And one day, Jesus Christ will return to this earth to consummate the kingdom that He established at His first coming. Beloved, that is the gospel message that we stake our lives on. And, hear this, if you believe that message, if you stake your life on that message, you do so because of the Spirit's work in you. You don't come to that revelation on your own. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We will have conviction. Second, we will have courage. I would submit to you, it is one thing to believe a message in the safety and privacy of your own home. It is quite another to take it out into the highways and hedges into a hostile world. Redeeming grace, Christ poured out His Spirit so you and me, and so the missionaries that we send out and the missionaries we support, Christ has given us His Spirit so that we would have courage to preach a foolish message to a lost and dying world. An irony of ironies. It is through that foolish message that this world will be saved. And then third, we will have clarity. What must we be crystal clear about? Well, for starters, we must begin here. We must be crystal clear that God is too holy for sinners like us. And therefore, what we all deserve is death and damnation. Praise God. God loves sinners. And God has determined to save sinners. In addition, we must be clear that Christ and Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ's death and Christ's death alone can satisfy the wrath of God. And God raised Christ from the dead and all the world can be reconciled to God by turning from their sin and entrusting themselves into Jesus Christ. You see, without any finger-crossing or hesitancy on our part, we must clearly proclaim that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ saved. And Christ is not just a Savior, but in our pluralistic world, we must announce quite clearly that Christ is the only Savior. And that it is only through His blood that sinners like us can receive pardon and peace. Church, we must be clear about these things. And we mustn't budge because Scripture doesn't allow us to budge. 
And not only must we be clear on these points, but the missionaries that we support must be equally clear on these points. The bigger point, though, of course, is that Christ has given to us, the church, His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will empower us for the work of being Christ's witnesses by giving us conviction and by giving us courage, and by giving us clarity. Well, this brings us then to our message. I've already more than hinted at this. Verse 8 is quite clear that we are to be Christ's witnesses, which means, and please don't take this the wrong way, I love you, but we are Christ's witnesses, not our own. Which means we preach Christ and not ourselves. To which I trust you would all heartily agree. But as is so often the case, our actions often betray us. For example, I have heard Christians stand up to proclaim the gospel. And all they've done is share their testimony. As if that was the gospel. A Christian, brace for impact. As important as your changed life is, and I have no intention of minimizing it, your changed life is not the gospel. Your changed life might be fruit of the gospel, but that is not the message. Neither is your inner peace, or your morality, or your happiness. You know what else isn't the gospel? Repeating the sinner's prayer? Or going to church? Or trying to be a better version of yourself? You know what else isn't the gospel? You trying really hard? You stopping that one pesky sin? You praying, you getting religious, you sending your kids to VBS. None of that is the gospel. Well, then what is? What is our message? Glad you asked. The gospel is an announcement, we are told. Good news, really, about what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin. I would ask you to hear this for it is quite literally the most important thing that you will ever hear. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ's perfect life, atoning death and bodily resurrection to remove our sin, turn aside his wrath and reconcile us to himself. And this is all to the praise of the glory of His grace. That is the Gospel. The Gospel is what God does in and through Jesus Christ. And the only way that we lay hold of Christ, that we lay hold of this Gospel, that we receive any of its benefits, the only way is by faith. Is by you and I turning from ourselves and our sin and turning to Jesus, our Savior. 
that's not just the message that we should proclaim. That's literally the only message entrusted to the church. And it is the only message by which sinners will ever be saved. And therefore, that is the message we must preach. And I should add, we should expect nothing less from missionaries. That is to say, the chief aim of missionaries that we ought to get behind and support are missionaries who are on the front lines preaching the gospel and planting churches. I'm going to step on some toes. You can email Pastor Dave afterwards. So much of missions today is digging wells and painting houses and baking goods and teaching elementary children English. And don't get me wrong, those are all very good things. But we need to understand that without the gospel, all of that stuff, it only meets limited temporal needs. People with freshly painted houses still go to hell. Even if you teach a fifth grader English, he still goes to hell. He just learns to blaspheme in a new language. What people need more than anything else is to be reconciled to a holy God. And the only way that will ever happen is through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so that message must be proclaimed all across the world. And especially by those that we would financially support, throw money at, put on an airplane and send across the world. This must be the priority. Which brings us to our final point. We might call it the why question. Really, it's a question about motivation. What is our motivation to be in mission? And I will concede that this is not really fleshed out here in our passage, but the rest of the book of Acts and all of the scriptures certainly flesh this out. Our motivation in missions is nothing less than the glory of Jesus Christ. That is what is to drive us and to propel us and to energize us. We ought to be a people who stay up at night and pray for and think about Christ being exalted all over the globe. So, so if you allow me to channel my inner Paul here, whether we eat or drink, or whether we send missionaries or give monies or go ourselves, we ought to do so all for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we pray and we preach. We labor and we love. We give monies and we go. We serve and we sacrifice. Beloved, we suffer and we do all for the sake of Jesus Christ. So that He would be trusted and treasured, not just here, but by all those from every tribe and language and people and nation. The mark, one of them anyway, of a mature and healthy Christian is that we have a heart that delights in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, even if it means 
my discomfort, my distress, or even my demise. And it will. It will. Something that we all need to be convinced of is that global missions will require you to be spent on someone or something other than you. Which perhaps gets at one of our most insidious sins, doesn't it? Because we love us. Be real. We do. We love our own comfort. We love our own convenience. And when it is threatened, what happens in our flesh? Immediately, our hackles go up. Repent. We have to repent of this. We have to repent of the sin of our selfishness. Because missions, verse 8, right? Being Christ's witnesses will require less of you and more of Him. It will require that you esteem Him more glorious and more worthy than the person you see staring back at you in the mirror. And that will mean sacrifice for you and it will mean suffering for you. And I'm sorry, but there really is no other way around this. The fact of the matter is, the Gospel never triumphs apart from some amount of sacrifice. And we should know the way of the kingdom is one of suffering before glory. In other words, we sacrifice now. We embrace suffering today. But we do so for Christ's sake. Clinging to His promise that though we suffer now, one day we really will inherit glory. So beloved, given all of this, particularly the main mission of the church, where are we supposed to go from here on this annual mission Sunday? Well, as Christians, we really only have two courses of action before us. We are either goers or senders. The difference, you ask? Well, goers go as missionaries by sacrificial living, and senders send missionaries out by sacrificial giving. If you are a Christian, those are the only two options you have. Allow me to be a bit more specific. Who are the goers? Well, goers are those who give up all of the comfort and convenience that you and I enjoy in this life. Goers are those that go out from Jerusalem all the way to the end of the earth, to a different place, to a different people, which means a new culture, which means a new language. And you give yourself away for this new people. You give yourself away so that Christ would be loved and treasured by people who did not love and treasure Him before. That's what goers do. They go. And as they go, they go carrying the message of the Gospel with them. Now, unless you are here this morning as a goer and you are on furlough, 
the rest of us are, by default, senders. Remember, those are the only two options. And senders, like goers, also sacrifice. As senders, it means you give up with trying to keep up with the Joneses. It means you refuse to allow your salary to dictate your lifestyle. Instead, you labor long and hard in the God-honoring vocation that you have been called to. And you do so, among other things, so that you can willingly steward those resources that have been entrusted to you for the sake of the mission. It means, as Pastor Justin has already mentioned in the pastoral prayer, that, that our time and treasures and talents are all leveraged for getting the gospel to people who have never heard it before. We also have to be very careful that we do not pretend that somehow any of this happens without money. For all of us who are senders, remember, the goers need food and clothing and shelter. They need language school and passports and training and medicine. Bibles need translated and planes chartered and supplies deployed and about a billion other things. So as senders, we do all we can to send these goers as we both partner together with Christ for the sake of the mission. Remember verse 8, that we would be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all the way to the end of the earth. Remember, He has given us His Holy Spirit. God has given us His Spirit to empower us for this global mission. Consider this, and this is somewhat provocative, I think. We have all we need to do this. At which point you might be tempted to respond, but, but God doesn't need us at all. He could reach the nations apart from us, right? After all, He could use angels. Or, or He could write the gospel in blood on the moon. Heck, he used Balaam's donkey to talk once. So in theory, God could proclaim the gospel message through farm animals, or fish, or trees, or tumbleweeds. And sure, God could do that, I suppose. However, that is not the way in which God has determined to glorify His Son. As humbling as it is, and I trust that you feel how humbling it is, God has chosen to use us for this task. It is you and me who are called to be Christ's witnesses. So perhaps the most important question this annual Missions Sunday is this. Are you being Christ's witness? Or has good once again become the enemy of great? Join with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. It has already been mentioned this morning, but, 
that every one of us here, we profess faith in Christ. We have heard the good news of the gospel because at one point someone shared it with us. And before them, someone else. And before them, someone else. And at one point, someone got on a boat and brought it over here to us. We are all recipients of the work of missionaries. And for that, we give you thanks. We thank you for how you have providentially worked over the years to cause the light of the gospel to spread across our dark world. This morning, we would simply pray that you would continue to do that work. That you would continue to cause the gospel to go forth into the world where Jesus has not yet been proclaimed. We pray in particular for the work of Northern Light Ministries that is taking place down in Papalote, as we do as well for the Ahmadi family and the work that is taking place in Ireland. And we pray that you would raise up from this congregation those who would be goers. And we pray that you would use this congregation to send, to encourage, to love, to pray, and to give so that Christ would be glorified by this world. We pray, especially right now, that, that we would not be unnecessarily burdened or guilted if we have not been altogether faithful in this area. We pray instead that you would encourage us, that you would encourage us to make tomorrow different than yesterday. We pray for the fullness of your spirit, not just in global missions, but again, even as we go our separate ways this afternoon and as we step back into the work week and school week tomorrow, help us to be mindful of the mission field that you have placed us in. And help us to labor diligently. Help us to have our motto be that of John the Baptist's. He must increase, I must decrease. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.